Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. December 1154, one of the most charismatic of all kings of England began his reign. Henry II was just 21 years old when he inherited the throne of England. But Henry was only half English. He spoke French and he was heir to great lands and titles in France. He was born here in Anjou, his father's ancestral lands in the heart of France. But if his father were French, his mother was the daughter of the English king, Henry I, and she made sure that the young Henry was familiar with England as well. Between the ages of 10 and 14, he lived at Bristol, where he had an English guardian and an English tutor who gave him his lifelong love of learning. He then returned to France, where he accumulated territories year by year, Normandy, Anjou, and finally Aquitaine, through his marriage to the beautiful Eleanor. But England was the greatest prize of all, fought over for 20 years by Henry's mother Matilda and his cousin Stephen. It now fell into Henry's grasp. Partly because Stephen had no heir, but above all because the Anglo-Norman aristocracy, the barons, saw in Henry a man they had to do business with. But though he was the barons' candidate, Henry quickly showed them who was master. It was a time when God and his angels slept, as the chroniclers lamented, with pardonable exaggeration. Nowadays, such thuggish disorder tends to come from those at the bottom of the social pile. Then it came from the men at the top, known as barons. The barons seized royal castles and they built new illegal castles of their own. 
and the hard-won unity of England threatened to disintegrate into a series of baronial statelets, each with its own castle capital. Henry, who had a vigorous sense of royal authority, was determined to stamp on this development. So royal castle, he decreed, must be returned to the king, and illegal castles should be demolished. For two decades, England had been weak, but now the crown was worn by a man whose personality matched the pretensions of the position. Henry's charismatic personality gave him the best of both worlds. He could consult and take advice, as an English king was bound to, but he could always be pretty confident of winning the argument. And he could win even when he wasn't there in person thanks to his innovations in the law, which became a kind of mirror reflecting and multiplying his royal authority. The main writing office was known as the Chancery, and these are typical of the documents that it produced. They're called writs, that is, standardised royal orders. The writ itself is written out on the slip of parchment, and then it's authenticated by attaching the Great Seal. The seal is deliberately large and impressive, and it carried the king's image to the furthest corners of his dominions. And it makes an important point about the nature of kingship. On the front, the king is seated as a lawgiver and judge. On the reverse, he is mounted and armed as the warrior defender of his people. Previously, the king's justice had depended on the king's actual presence. Now, with the writ, the seal and the magic of writing. The king and his justice could be everywhere for everybody. But Henry's was not the only monarchy in England. The church was a state within a state. It was also a superstate whose boundaries were even wider than those of Henry's empire. Once the church had been the nursemaid of monarchy, now it threatened to become its master. The Pope, as the successor of St Peter, claimed the religious allegiance of all Catholic Christians, including kings and emperors. But the Pope was also an elective monarch, the heir of the Roman emperors, who often claimed to be the political superior of kings as well. And kings, however good Christians they were, rarely took that claim lying down. No one was less disposed to lie down than Henry. He thought he'd found the perfect instrument to control the church in Thomas Becket, whom he appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. Becket was a middle-class Londoner whom Henry had plucked from obscurity to make Chancellor, Chief Minister and his closest personal friend. He expected similar loyalty from his new Archbishop in vain. From the first, Becket went out of his way to pick a fight with the king. He ostentatiously resigned the chancellorship and he took an extreme and intransigent stance on any issue, however petty, which affected the church's claim to absolute independence. Why the transformation in Becket from the king's dearest friend to his bitterest enemy? Had he undergone? A religious transformation? Was he just a consummate actor, throwing himself with zest into a new part? 
Was he trying to prove himself to his fellow clergy, many of whom thought him no better than a royal stooge? Any and every of these explanations is possible. What is certain, however, is that Becket's behavior provoked an equal and opposite reaction in the king. Neither man would give way. One or the other would have to break or to be broken. Becket was the first to crack, assailed by crude threats from Henry. Becket, fearing for his life, fled to France. Henry had the upper hand, but what he worried would Becket do now that he'd escaped the king's watch. So a compromise was patched up and Becket was allowed to return to England. And what a return. For at Christmas, 1170, word reached Henry that Becket, who'd learned nothing and forgotten nothing, was up to all his old tricks. The archbishop, his enemies insinuated to the king, was careering round the country with armed knights, and he was excommunicating bishops who were loyal to Henry. Something snapped, and there resulted one of those famous Plantagenet rages. Will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? The king exclaimed, or words to that effect. Four of Henry's knights took the king at his word and set out to confront Becket at Canterbury Cathedral. They accused Becket of treachery against his king. It was Reginald Fitzurse who struck the first blow, taking off the back of Becket's head. Still denouncing his assailants, the archbishop fell to the pavement of his cathedral and the others piled in. Moments later, Becket lay dead. When he heard the news, Henry plunged into an agony of grief, shutting himself away for three whole days so that his friends feared for his health, if not for his life. Was it personal grief for the death of his one-time friend or horror at what had been done in his name? In either case, the king's response fully matched the enormity of the deed, for Europe was stunned by the murder of an archbishop in his own cathedral on the orders of his own king. And letters rained upon the Pope, even from members of Henry's own family, demanding that he take action against a sacrilegious king who was worse than a Nero or even than a Judas. And Becket's ghost, growing more powerful year by year, was to serve as the perfect cover for resistance or rebellion against the murderer king. The result was, in 1173, a great rebellion started. It was led by Henry's own elder sons. A few years before, Henry had announced how his dominions would be divided on his death. His eldest son and principal heir, Henry, would receive England, Normandy and Anjou. Richard would be Duke of Aquitaine. And Geoffrey would receive Brittany. There was no land as yet for his beloved baby son, John. Henry had an eye on conquering Ireland for him. He had whetted his son's appetite with the promise of future power, but he'd given them little or nothing in the present. Henry's sons were impatient. 
For more than a decade, Henry held his own against his disloyal and rebellious sons, who'd allied with the French against their own father. But finally, in 1189, Henry lost his grip. He was defeated in battle by Richard and the King of France, and his health collapsed. Mortally sick, and already a broken man at the age of only 56, Henry was carried back in a litter here to his castle of Chinon in his native Anjou to die. Henry's body was brought for burial to the nearby abbey of Fontevraud, the traditional burial place of the Counts of Anjou. Like a wounded animal, he'd gone home to die. Yet, he had been one of England's most successful kings, able in his prime to enforce his authority on barons, bishops, and even other princes. He had turned his vision of kingship into a reality. Would his successors be able to sustain it? Alongside the tomb of Henry II, here in the Abbey of Fontevraud in Anjou, lies this one of his son and eventual heir, Richard. Richard ruled the family empire for almost 10 years until he was mortally wounded in a siege here in France. But during all that time, Richard spent only six months in England. Instead, he used England merely to bankroll his adventures elsewhere, above all, on crusade in the Holy Land. These adventures won Richard a golden reputation and the name Coeur de Lyon, Lionheart. He would be a hard act to follow, especially as England had got used to an absentee king, and especially as his heir was his younger brother, John. For John's contemporaries and for most succeeding generations of historians, John was the very model of a bad king. And what made things worse was the fact that John had the misfortune to confront the most effective king of France for generations, Philip Augustus. By 1204, John had been shorn of a third of his territories, including his ancestral lands of Normandy, Anjou and Brittany. For the first time since the Norman conquest, the king of England was that and little more. In an attempt to recover his position, John decided to follow in his father's footsteps by striking at the power of the church. But once again, he had the misfortune to encounter one of the greatest medieval popes, Innocent III. Pope Innocent, despite his name, was a formidable politician who turned real weapons as well as spiritual ones against the King of England. For he not only excommunicated John, but declared him deposed and invited Philip Augustus, John's other great enemy, to launch a crusade and seize the throne of England for himself. Under threat by his two most dangerous enemies, John had to buy one off, and the price he was prepared to pay was astonishing. It was England itself. On the 15th of May, 1213, King John received the Pope's representative at Dover Castle. At the meeting, John agreed to everything that the Pope demanded. But John also went much further, and in a dramatic move, he issued a charter 
in which, of his own free will, he acknowledged the Pope as his overlord and agreed to pay a large annual cash tribute. John had saved his neck, but at what cost? In England, John faced mutiny. The barons sank their own differences and presented a united front against the king. Never again, they decided, would a king be able to behave as John had done. And they backed up their demands with the threat of overwhelming force. On the 15th of June, 1215, the two sides met in a field near Windsor known as Runnymede. The barons, who had come fully armed, presented their demands. And King John, reluctantly and already in bad faith, granted what they wished. The agreement became known as Magna Carta, the Great Charter. But in fact, it was only the most famous and ambitious of a succession of attempts stretching back through the coronation oath of Henry I and the memories of Anglo-Saxon England to define the rights and duties of king and people. Nowadays, the fame of Magna Carta rests on clauses like this. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned, or stripped of his goods or possessions, save by lawful judgment of his peers or equals, or by the law of the land. Provisions like these are, or have become, what we call basic human rights, and echoes of them survive in the statute book and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But they come a very long way down the document. At the top, of the provisions that really concern the authors of the document, the bishops and the barons. This clause allows the barons to use force to bring John into line if he showed any sign of backsliding from Magna Carta. It was tough stuff, and John didn't like it one bit. It seemed a total defeat, but John had one last card up his sleeve. Immediately, he appealed to his new overlord, the Pope, to have it annulled. Innocent agreed, and Magna Carta was promptly declared null and void. The barons were outraged at the king's faithlessness, and open war broke out. For the barons, it was no longer a question of restraining John, but of dethroning him. They even turned to the national enemy and invited Louis, son of the French king, to take the English throne. Louis invaded, and by the autumn of 1216, had seized much of the southeast of England, including London itself. Suddenly, at this point, on the night of the 18th of October, 1216, John died. His heir was his son, Henry, but Henry was only nine years old. The child's cause looked hopeless, but with John safely out of the way, the prospect of a French succession lost its attraction for an important group of barons and bishops. Instead, they decided that the young Henry should be brought to Gloucester and crowned as quickly as possible. On the morning of the 28th of October, 1216, the impromptu coronation took place. 
Now it was up to his regents to persuade his country to accept him as king. Their first moves were not military, but propagandistic. For already there was something called public opinion, and they appealed to it by issuing a letter in the king's name, which argued that his youth meant that he'd had no part in the sins of his father. Next, Henry's regents made a major political concession. They reissued Magna Carta without the clauses authorizing the use of force against the king. At a stroke, the charter was rescued from oblivion and the cause of civil war removed and Henry universally recognized as king. For the remainder of his minority, the spirit of Magna Carta was adhered to and the great men of the kingdom had a real say in government. Magna Carta had saved Henry's crown. It remained to be seen if he would honor the charter when he came of age. In 1232, Henry III was preparing a coup d'etat that would overthrow the men and measures that had restrained him for so long. Though he was 25, it had been difficult to persuade his nobles that he was no longer a child that they should relinquish control. Now he was determined to be king in deed as well as king in name. And he was determined, above all, to break free from the shackles of Magna Carta. Henry shard power and wealth onto a close-knit circle of French relatives and favorites. Inevitably, the English barons resented it, and they were spurred on by Henry's autocratic style of kingship. The barons were determined to restore the traditional English practice. They would reimpose Magna Carta, and they would devise a new machinery of government that would so tie the king's hands that neither he nor his heirs would ever be able to escape from it again. The nobles quickly found a leader in Simon de Montfort. In 1258, de Montfort and six other leading barons swore an oath of mutual loyalty. Together, they were more than a match for the king, and they had their own distinct ideas of how England should be run. The two sides met at Oxford. The council at Oxford drew up a revolutionary new way of governing the country that was intended to turn England into a crowned republic, and Henry despite his high view of kingship, had no choice but to agree. The provisions of Oxford, as the new constitutional blueprint was known, look back to Anglo-Saxon England with its tradition of a strong national community. And they also looked abroad to Germany and Italy, where new self-governing communes or city-states like Florence or Venice were appearing. The result was to leave Henry as king, but king in name only. Instead, his powers would be exercised by an elected council of 15, which in turn would answer to parliaments meeting at three set intervals a year. No other European country had tried such an audacious governmental experiment, and no other king had been subject to such humiliation. The king was determined to avenge himself. The only way was force, 
and in 1264, the two sides confronted each other outside Lewis in East Sussex. Inspired by de Montfort's leadership and wearing the Crusader cross, his army quickly reduced the king's forces to a broken rabble. Intimidated and surrounded, Henry decided to surrender. But Simon's terms were tough. Henry had to swear once again to submit to the baronial government of the provisions of Oxford. And to make sure that he kept his word this time, he was compelled to hand over his son Edward as a hostage for his good behaviour. The king was reduced to a mere figurehead, whilst all power was exercised by Simon's baronial clique, who claimed to be acting in the name of the whole community of England. But de Montfort's ideas also appealed far beyond the baronial class, and this led him to broaden dramatically the membership of what was already becoming known as Parliament. Hitherto, Parliament had consisted of nobles and bishops, but in 1265, Simon enfranchised new groups. Simon summoned representatives, small groups of knights from each county and burgesses or local bigwigs from the more important towns. Such representatives had been summoned before to consult on taxation, but this was the first time that they'd been invited to discuss and to decide the great affairs of the realm. It was a blatant bid for support for Simon's revolution from the groups immediately below the magnates, the wider community of the realm. But despite such bold moves, Simon's revolution was to be short-lived. Just as the tide was turning, the king's son and heir, the Lord Edward, escaped from captivity and raised an army. Edward met fellow royalists here at Ludlow Castle. He made the symbolic promise to uphold Magna Carta and then marched to meet de Montfort's forces. The armies met just north of the town of Evesham. Simon was hoping every minute to be joined by his son at the head of reinforcements, but the reinforcements never arrived, and without them, de Montfort was overwhelmed. De Montfort himself was killed only 15 months since his great victory at Lewis. For the moment, the royalists had triumphed and the authority of the monarchy was restored. But which way would the balance swing in the future? In 1272, Edward I inherited the crown from his father, Henry III. Edward's first task was to reunite his realm, divided by the baron's revolt. But instead of waging a vendetta against his surviving opponents, he forgave them, allowing them to buy back the property that his father had confiscated. The result made Edward appear magnanimous, but it also raised money for the crown. Edward had learned from the rebel barons as well, and he understood that it was in the towns and villages of England that the roots of his power lay. So he decided to reinforce the bonds between king and people by ordering a huge nationwide investigation 
into official corruption. It would be king and people versus the fat cats. Edward was showing that he cared, that the king's rights complemented the rights of his subjects, and that he was able to guarantee equal justice for all his subjects, no matter how humble. Edward's next task was to restore the authority of the King of England over the whole of Britain. In 1276, from his wild fastness in North Wales, Llewellyn ab Griffith had extended control over most of Wales. But Edward was loath to accept the rise of Wales as an independent power, so he insisted on the homage or ritual submission which the rulers of Wales traditionally paid to the King of England. There resulted a struggle of wills. Three times Prince Llewellyn was summoned to perform homage and three times he refused. Finally, and with plenty of time to make his preparations, Edward declared war. Edward was not the first king of England to fight the Welsh, but Edward carried the old policy to new extremes. It was Edward's treatment of the rebel leaders that shows most clearly that he was a new kind of king with a new, harder attitude to kingship, which he'd learned during the struggles of his father's reign. Ever since the Norman Conquest, barons and kings had fought with each other with few hard feelings on either side. No longer, because Edward now declared that to wage war against the king was treason. Treason was effectively a new crime for which a new, terrible punishment was devised, and the first to suffer it was Daffydap Griffith, Prince Cluellen's brother. Because he'd betrayed the king, he was dragged to the place of execution by horses. Because he'd killed noblemen, he was hanged. He was cut down while still alive, castrated, disemboweled, and his entrails burned. And because he'd committed crimes in different parts of the kingdom, his body was hacked into four of the quarters distributed throughout the realm. Wales was crushed under the heel of a brutal military occupation. Edward's empire now stretched secure from east to west across the British Isles. But in the south, the King of France was threatening Edward's lands in Gascony whilst in the north, Scotland at last seemed about to fall into his grasp. Scotland was an ancient monarchy, but its kings were much intermarried with the English royal house. They swore fealty to the English kings. They fought for them as well as with them, and they sat in English councils and parliaments. In short, were they separate monarchs, or were they the greatest subjects of the kings of England? It was a highly ambiguous relationship, but Edward, with his sharp lawyer's mind and his acute awareness of his own rights, hated ambiguity. When he could, he would make the relationship of the King of Scotland and the King of England clear on his own terms and in his own interests. Thank you.
Edward's opportunity came in 1291. The sole heir of the Scottish throne was the little Norwegian princess, the granddaughter of the deceased King of Scots. She was brought back to Scotland, but died on the way. As feudal overlord of the country, Edward claimed the right to choose the next king. Edward would be kingmaker in Scotland, and he would remake the relations between the two kingdoms. Of the 13 candidates, Edward chose John Balliol. But Edward was clear that even after he'd chosen Balliol as king, he remained sovereign lord of Scotland. He, Edward, was finally responsible for justice and good government in Scotland. And he would enforce those responsibilities as he enforced his laws in England, in his own English courts. The Scots were provoked into rebellion. Edward to invasion. Edward took his army on a military promenade through Scotland. The great fortress of Edinburgh fell after only five days' siege and Stirling before Edward even arrived. He boasted that Scotland was conquered in only 21 weeks. Now Edward had achieved what he probably always wanted, the direct rule of Scotland. But fierce guerrilla resistance to the English conquest broke out in Scotland. Finally, in 1305, William Wallace, the leader of Scottish resistance, was betrayed. And Edward decided to make an example of him. At Smithfield, now London's meat market, Wallace was horrifically tortured and killed. No sooner had Edward dealt with Wallace than a daunting new enemy took his place, Robert the Bruce. And it was on his way north in 1307 to wage yet another campaign against Bruce that Edward died at the age of 68. There's a story that his last wish was that his body should be boiled until the bones were clean of flesh and his skeleton be carried at the head of every English army until the Scots were finally crushed. It didn't quite work out like that. Instead, his body was buried in his father's great church at Westminster Abbey. But inscribed on his tomb was the words, Malleus Scotorum, Hammer of the Scots. Edward was a supremely self-confident king with the clear sense of the power and the rights of the crown. He may be remembered for his wars, but his legacy is much greater. At home, Edward reaffirmed the direct bonds between crown and people. Abroad, his victories began to foster a sense of national pride. Edward I was a difficult act to follow for any son, but Edward II was particularly ill-equipped to step into his father's shoes. He may have looked like his father, tall, handsome and strong, but in fact, they'd little in common. He lacked his father's strength of will and had, for contemporaries, an even more worrying personality flaw, which was evident even at his coronation. Edward was crowned 
with his wife, Queen Isabella, by his side. But it was his childhood friend, Piers Gaveston, who stole the show. Edward had eyes and ears only for Piers, and Piers, in turn, gave himself the airs and graces of a royal favourite. Whether or not the relationship between Edward and Piers was actively homosexual is unclear. What is clear is that Edward and Piers were breaking the rules and they were offending those who saw themselves as the guardians of the rules, the English nobility. At first, the nobles attempted to deal with the situation by demanding Piers' exile. But when Edward insisted on Gaveston's return, they took more extreme action. Piers was captured and executed. Edward was grief-stricken at Gaveston's murder, but it was more than a personal loss. He'd also lost face as king. But now Edward, under attack at home, had the opportunity to recoup his position abroad. Bruce's long guerrilla campaign in Scotland was at last bearing fruit. He drove the English from their key castles, and he even dared to strike across the English border with increasingly devastating raids. The English and Scottish armies met on the 23rd of June, 1314, just outside Stirling. The battle began, and the English knights charged the Scots' front line. But the Scots held firm. Unable to break the front rank, the English retreated. But their retreat turned into a rout. Encumbered by heavy armor, many men drowned in the boggy ground. The losses were huge. The war with Scotland had given Edward the opportunity to redeem his reputation. Instead, the shattering defeat of Bannockburn sent it to new depths. He proved to be as bad a general as he was a politician, and his flight made him seem like a coward as well. Nor was Edward any more successful as a husband. Enraged by his neglectful treatment, Edward's wife, Isabella, had taken a lover, Mortimer, and fled to France with him. And it was from there that they planned their invasion of England. In September 1326, Isabella landed in England and met with little resistance. She seized the crown in the name of her and Edward's eldest son, a third Edward. For the first time in English history, a reigning monarch was formally deposed from the throne. Edward was imprisoned here in this guardroom in the keep of Barclay Castle. He soon escaped, but was recaptured. Thereafter, his imprisonment became stricter, and heavy locks and bolts were bought for the doors. Finally, he was murdered. It couldn't be seen as murder, of course, and pains were taken to leave as few marks as possible on the body. According to most contemporary accounts, he was pressed down with a table with heavy weights and suffocated. In April 1331, a three-day tournament was proclaimed in the name of the new king, Edward III. 
Edward had none of his grandfather's ruthless driving energy or his stiff-backed authoritarianism either. Instead, he cultivated an easy, winning charm. Edward III, unlike his father or even grandfather, truly accepted that he had to work in harmony with the nobility. Indeed, to do so was a pleasure as well as a duty. The result was that Edward encouraged an aristocratic culture which bound the king and the nobles together. And he established a new order of chivalry called the Order of the Garter. Edwardian England was an age of knights and fantasy castles, of honours and arms. It was a culture rooted in war and leading the country into battle was a hero king. Edward's first target was Scotland. Scotland had eluded his grandfather, Edward I, and defeated and humiliated his father, Edward II. So, for Edward III, war with Scotland was a matter of honour. On Halidon Hill, just outside Berwick, the English and Scots met. As the Scots approached, the English archers fired their deadly wave of arrows with devastating impact. England's honour, lost at Bannockburn, was restored and balladeers celebrated. His next target would be France, the country with which England had been intertwined in peace and war since the Norman Conquest. War with France offered the chance of rich booty, vast ransoms, and controlling the lucrative trade in the English Channel. But if Edward and his nobles fought the war, it was the grey men of Parliament who paid for it. Edward's victories were reported in detail to Parliament. Parliament was consulted on the war diplomacy, and Parliament ratified the peace treaties with France. It was good politics, but it was more, because it turned Edward's wars into a joint enterprise between the king and the English nation, and it made the English monarchy a national monarchy as well, of which Englishmen could be proud, and in which they felt they had a stake and an investment. It was in August 1346 that Edward's style of kingship was fully vindicated. The English and French met at Crécy near Calais. The French were confident that victory was theirs, for they outnumbered the English eight to one. But Edward unleashed the full martial potential of his country. Now, the training in the longbow and the promise of rich plunder, all under the command of the king, created a truly terrifying force. By nightfall, the battle was over. The French fled, leaving behind 4,000 dead knights. After Crecy, Edward's popularity reached its zenith. The most memorable legacy of the Edwards was the forging of a nation that defined itself through war, a superman 
like Edward I could manage it, or a man's man like Edward III, but could their successors? The hope for the future lay with Edward's eldest son and heir, the Black Prince. But then, in 1376, disaster struck. Aged 45, he died. In his place, his son, the nine-year-old Richard, became heir to the throne. A year later, Edward III was dead, and Richard, aged only 10, became king. At his coronation, he was anointed with holy oils. He was crowned with Edward the Confessor's crown, and the greatest bishops and earls knelt at his feet to pay him homage. One of the boy's toys was a set of dice, loaded so that he always won. And life must have seemed just as rosy for the lad, who grew up with a sense of his absolute, untrammeled right to power. But as Richard grew into adulthood, his autocratic nature increasingly chafed under the restraints that the nobility placed on him. The nobility had grown even more rich and powerful in the French wars. From their castles across the country, these lords could call upon large bands of armed retainers. And one of their natural leaders was Henry Bolingbroke, son and heir of the Duke of Lancaster. Both Richard and Henry were grandsons of Edward III and childhood friends, but they had very different political views as grown men. Richard believed that a king was God on earth, Henry that he was a first amongst equals. The result was real war. Richard and his court favourites against the nobility. On the 19th of December, 1387, the two sides met at Radcote Bridge, just outside Oxford. Richard himself did not fight. Instead, his army was led by his friend and favourite, Robert de Vere. It was Henry who led the rebel forces into battle. Vere was defeated and fled into exile. Henry was victorious. Richard was left only with the title of king, but it was enough. Slowly and painstakingly, he rebuilt his position and power. Adversity had taught him patience and cunning, and he had decided that revenge was a dish best eaten cold. By 1397, Richard was strong enough to strike, and one by one, those lords who'd rebelled against him met with his revenge. On trumped-up charges of treason, they were either executed or exiled. Henry the king ruled would go into exile for 10 years. Thus, King Richard, like a demigod, struck down his remaining foes. In 1399, Henry Bolingbroke was exiled here in Paris. Within the year, he received a double blow. His father, the Duke of Lancaster, died, and Richard seized all of Henry's vast inheritance for himself. 
but Richard had overreached himself. All landowners in England now had cause to fear for their own property. And Henry determined to reclaim what was rightfully his by force. of only 10 ships, Henry sailed round England to the Yorkshire coast. Yorkshire was the heartland of his confiscated estate as Henry moved from castle to castle. They surrendered easily to their rightful master. As Henry marched south, his army swelled, reinforced by the great northern earls. Richard now sought safety in Edward I's great Welsh castles. But Henry lured him out with the promise that he came only to claim his inheritance of Lancaster and had no intention of threatening the crown itself. It was a lie, but it was a successful one. As Richard emerged, an ambush of Henry's men lay in waiting. The King of England was Henry Bolingbroke's prisoner. For it was clear that Henry wanted far more than just the Duchy of Lancaster. He would settle for nothing less than the crown of England itself. Richard, for his part, put up a brief struggle. But faced with the threat of force, he abdicated his throne to God. But now Henry, in a theatrical gesture worthy of Richard himself, moved to lay claim to that vacant throne. He descended, he said, of the true royal blood of good King Henry III. Thanks to the help of God and his friends, he'd been able to reclaim that right, and in so doing, he'd saved the realm from ruin by the bad government of his predecessor, Richard. In 12 weeks, Henry Bolingbroke had transformed himself from a landless exile to Henry IV, King of England. However, Henry would have no security so long as Richard lived. So Henry decided to kill the former king. But secretly, and without leaving marks on the body, Richard was left slowly to starve to death in Pontefract Castle. In the years that followed, one challenger after another rose up against Henry. Then the king developed a disfiguring skin disease. To many, it seemed proof of God's displeasure with the usurper king. In March 1413, Henry came to Westminster with the hand of death already on him. On the 20th, whilst praying at the confessor's tomb, he had a seizure, and he was brought to this chamber here in the abbot's lodging. The crown was placed beside his pillow. He seemed to cease breathing, and his face was covered. Thinking, like everybody else, that his father was already dead, his son and heir, Prince Henry, took the crown. Suddenly, the old king roused himself and demanded of Henry by what right he took the crown, since he himself had none to it. Coolly, Henry replied, as you have kept it by the sword, so will I keep it whilst I have life. 
It's a good story, and as an insight into the prince's character, it's shrewd for whatever doubts Henry IV might have harboured about his right to the throne. Henry V had none at all. Henry V's first task was to unite the fractured realm that his father had bequeathed to him. As the son of a usurper, Henry knew from personal experience the importance of letting bygones be bygones. So Henry pardoned his father's enemies and Richard's supporters. Having settled domestic politics, Henry was able to turn his attention to the project that would dominate his reign, the war of conquest with France. For Henry, the war was essentially about justice. From his ancestor, Henry II, he'd inherited claims to the whole of the Angevin Empire, of Normandy, Anjou, and of Aquitaine. Whilst from his other ancestress, Isabella of France, the Queen of Edward II, he claimed the throne of France itself. Only let these claims be conceded, Henry announced, and there would be no war. From the French point of view, this was an outrageous demand, and they refused. Henry set sail for France on the 11th of August, 1415. His first campaign is the stuff of legend and drama. For Harry, England and St George. This was the battle cry that Shakespeare gave the English soldiers on the field at Agincourt. Here, Henry showed himself everything that an English king should be. Resolute, heroic, and a born leader of men. The English soldiers were far outnumbered by the French, perhaps by three to one. But fired up with loyalty to their king and country, they won an astounding victory. It seemed proof positive that Henry V was God's chosen king. Henry seemed to have won the prize that had eluded even Edward III. By the terms of the treaty, Henry was recognised as the legitimate heir of the present King of France, Charles VI, whose daughter Catherine he married a few days later. He would rule France not as a conqueror, but as a legitimate king. And above all, he promised he would bring peace with justice. But suddenly, at the age of only 35, Henry caught dysentery and died. In only nine years, Henry V had reunited England and taken France. And he'd done it all as a consciously English king, speaking and writing English even for official documents. For the first time since the Norman Conquest, England was a nation-state once more. <laughs>